A desperate surgeon. No sign of the four-year-old. I miss you. We hold great concerns. Cleo was taken. 18 days of asking, where is Cleo? What's your name, sweetheart? My name is Cleo. More than three days since Cleo went missing, the search is hampered by wild weather as mum Ellie and stepdad Jake give a heart-wrenching television interview. She's beautiful, um, delicate. She um, has, like, the biggest heart. She um, just so funny. Um, she loves rocks. <laughs> she collects rocks. Um, she loves makeup and dressing up. She, you know, every day wants to wear a princess dress. I'm Natalie Bongiolo, and joining me in this episode is leading Australian body language expert Alan Peace, who'll talk about the fallout from that appeal to the public. Also from State Emergency Services, Josh Gardner, and the West Australians, Kristen Shorten. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for having me. Kristen, to face a TV camera when your four-year-old has been missing for four days or so would be nothing short of harrowing, but sometimes families in these circumstances are compelled to do just that. Absolutely. You can only imagine how uncomfortable and distressing it would be for families of missing people who have never dealt with the media before. But the reality is during the first 48 hours when that missing child's life is in imminent danger, the family just needs to do as much as they can to generate media interest in the search for the child. And publicity and media interest is the best way to generate leads from the public for police. And it's just essential to get the message out to as many people as possible to uncover clues. But also putting the grieving family on TV also helps the story stay in the headlines. So the more publicity, the better. And that grieving family can really humanise the story. It's not only crucial to appeal for the abducted to come forward or safely return the child, but public pleas, particularly in cases of kidnapping, can really resonate with the perpetrator's relatives and friends. So it can really compel them or have a spike of conscience and come forward as well. Alan, as we've seen in many high-profile cases, loved ones will often be judged on how they appear to behave. And I guess that can really lead to some damaging speculation. Well, absolutely. And one of the things we know about seeing what someone face-to-face is 60 to 80% of all the impact of the message that we're perceiving is through body language, the way they look, appear and behave. So most of our impressions of someone, especially in that first four minutes, is the way they look. And what we found about 30 years ago when we did a study on this is that in a court situation, for example, if somebody's well-dressed, good-looking, taller and thinner, they get lighter sentences than somebody who is not. Wow. Well, we know this was the first time that we had seen Ellie in this interview, which was broadcast on TV news stations across the country. We're just going to have another little listen. I know she's strong. Um, Cleo was born eight weeks early. She was premature and she's been strong from the day she was born. So I know she can get through whatever she's going through. You've been asked to observe and comment on probably thousands of interviews like this. When you saw this one, were you concerned the public might misjudge what they were seeing? Well, many of the public did misjudge it, Nat, and that's, that's an issue. Uh, it's a pretty common issue because on that first interview, uh, you've got to look at the context under which things happen and the circumstances surrounding it. Now, these are two young kids from a small country town, uh, and suddenly they've got cameras, 
police and people thrust in their face. And the first response you're going to get from that from anybody in that situation is fear. And so in that first interview, what we saw was uh, both her and Jake sitting back with their arms crossed, uh, showing down expressions and not making eye contact with the camera. Now, these are pretty classic fear symptoms. You know, they're fear reactions to being put in a tense situation. If you're not experienced in reading this, you're likely to be able to read these as deception because when, when people aren't telling the truth, when they're deceiving us or just trying to lie, these are signals that also occur during that as well. But that's why you've got to look at everything in the context under which it happens. And then we look for collusion between the parties to see if they're, if they're manufacturing a story, are they trying to make it up and support each other? And then that first interview, all they showed was fear. There was no collusion. There's nothing contradictory about what the two said. Yeah, so you saw that first interview and your interpretation, you were very strong right at the outset, weren't you, as to what you thought you were seeing? Well, well, absolutely. And it takes me back 40 years to when I did the same thing with Lindy Chamberlain. Uh, Lindy Chamberlain came to visit me at the time when it was an inquest and she said, this could be a court case. People are saying I did this. And I, and I spent a number of sessions with her. And I was convinced that she was innocent. She didn't do it. She just had a really bad image now. She just didn't look good on TV and didn't know how to present herself. And as a result of that, women, especially in Australia, were really angry about it and said, well, she's got something to hide, which could equal guilt as the way it all finished up. So when I saw these two on television, I thought, this is pretty much the same sort of scenario. These are people who believe what they say. There's no collusion between them. Their body language reflects the fear situation they're in. But other times, you know, I've done interviews where you look at people who uh, are claiming the same story. That is, we didn't do it. Then you look at their body language versus what they say and you see a contradiction. That's when the alarm bells go off. You talk about the Lindy Chamberlain case, which is that horrific case in the, the 1980s where Lindy Chamberlain was basically crucified. She said that a, a dingo had taken her baby, but the public backlash against her was extraordinary. You came out then, didn't you? And you said back then publicly that you thought she didn't do it. What was the reaction to that back then? Well, the reaction was pretty savage. And as for those who can recall that case, but the reaction to Lindy Chamberlain overall was fairly savage, particularly from women. Now, men are a little bit not sure what to make of the whole thing because their men's abilities overall to read body signals and actually what they're seeing is is, is far poorer than women's. And, and women were looking at it saying there's something wrong with the way she's presenting herself, with what she's saying, that there's not right. And in the minds of many people, it equal guilt. And so I, I came out when I was doing the breakfast shows and the mid shows back in the early 80s, and I came out and said, look, I've done a full analysis of this, and I've met with Lindy Chamberlain on a number of occasions. And in my opinion, this gal is telling the truth. She's a victim of her own bad body language, in effect. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I got flamed as a result of that. I got accused of protecting a child killer, and, and they started spitting on my kids at wow. school. It was a very, oh. very bad reaction. So when I saw Jake and Ali on TV, I thought, this has the makings of being a similar thing. And that's why I did come out very strongly at the start and say, I didn't say they didn't do it. What I said was well, these two are showing no collusion and nothing deceptive about what they're saying. They're showing fear reactions to what's going on, which in my mind equals that they are, in their opinion, telling the truth. And what was the reaction to that, to you saying that you believe they were truthful? Well, that was an interesting one. Again, it was reliving the Lindy Chandler scenario that if you look at, say, what we got on our social media, and we've got about 200,000 people on our combined social media, of those who commented, and, and there were hundreds who did, they jumped on the script quickly, about 70 to 80% 
I said, you know, thanks for coming out and supporting these two because the, the keyboard warriors are giving them a hammering and saying some pretty nasty things. And they were very supportive of what I said, but there were maybe 20% of those comments who were very, very angry and, and, and very bitchy about what I said, saying, you know, I'm protecting people who did it. He's, he's a stepfather and statistically stepfathers did it and uh, that she's hiding and she's smirking. Well, it's good to see that 80% of people didn't jump to conclusions, but in terms of people who were angry, so was that anger directed equally at Ellie and Jake? Well, it was directed equally at both of them, that, that she's concealing something, she's got this smirk, she's loving the media, having a great time, and, oh. but her smile, in fact, was a typical, like Lindy Chandler, her, was what we call a fear face. She was actually frightened of being in these situations. And he, Jake, he'd looked like a downtrodden, beaten guy. He had, the look on his face was one of typical male being defeated. That is, he, his job in evolutionary terms, if you like, was to protect uh, women and children. And he failed at that. And that was what was reflected on his face. I mean, I've said it before, but it's actually unimaginable what people are going through at those times. When the police found little Cleo, what was your reaction? Well, my initial reaction was, I guess, like like most Aussies who heard, it was elation. It really was because, and we'd all been following this case for eighteen days, and statistically, the chances of getting a good outcome of that were were pretty slim at that point. That's the way these things go. I, I, I was pretty excited about it, and the interesting thing is, I, I went back onto our social media to see what was happening the next day because uh, I haven't looked at our social media for you know, about a week or so because I was getting a hammering from too many people. And a lot of those comments, particularly the nasty ones about Jake and Ali, were taken back off again. So mm. I just pictured people at home who were having pretty bad negative attitudes towards what they see on the media and having a say about it as wrong as they can get. Some of those keyboard warriors would have been feeling pretty red-faced, I imagine. Did you get any apologies for their behaviour? No, no, absolutely none. I did get quite a few comments from people who were very supportive of these two and really felt for the fact that the daughter disappeared. Those comments were about saying, well, you know, we knew you had it right because we thought that too. But no, the people would worry us they wouldn't be red-faced because you can't see them. Well, Kristen, following Ellie's interview, you spoke to a family who've been in this horrific situation themselves, and that's the parents of Daniel Morecambe. Yes, I did. And uh, I know the Morecams quite well. I covered their son's disappearance for many years when I worked in Queensland for the Courier Mail. So I did reach out and touch base with them after Cleo disappeared because they are one of a small handful of parents who know the agony of having a child missing for by that point it had been um, a number of days and having to plead with the public for information about their whereabouts. I mean, that's an absolutely harrowing case as well. And, you know, this is a club that nobody ever wants to be a member of. When you spoke to them about Ellie and Jake's appearance and their plea to the public, what did they say? Did they have a message for them? Yeah, they did. They had some advice for them. But I think when they saw Ellie and Jake at that initial press conference making that public appeal, it just took them right back. They saw themselves in Ellie and Jake. They said to see Ellie and Jake sitting there in those chairs at that orchestrated or, you know, press conference facilitated by the police. They said that was haunting. Bruce's words were, that was us. Honestly, it was an immediate flashback. And he said that him and Denise could feel the emotion as Ellie and Jake were speaking because they have literally sat in that chair. Their son Daniel was abducted while waiting for a bus and he was almost 13. So it was a different situation in that he was an older child. But, you know, just like Ellie and Jake, they waited longer than two weeks. They waited eight years for answers, but they 
certainly endured those harrowing first weeks like Ellie and Jake did, just the turmoil and agony of not knowing where their child was or what had happened to them. I mean, it's incomprehensible, isn't it? You just actually can't even imagine it. And you just think of these people, it's uncomfortable for people to be in front of a TV camera at the best of times, but just imagine being in front of a camera in this scenario. And I guess one of the things that got the armchair detectives and the keyboard warriors fired up was this missing sleeping bag. Now, we mentioned this in episode one, but on day three, police release a picture and the sleeping bag is a Wanderer brand. It's black. It's got a red inner lining. But Kristen, there's still mystery now as to what happened to it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when Inspector John Monday revealed to the media and consequently the public that that sleeping bag was missing. That obviously is what set alarm bells off for everyone, that Cleo had in fact been abducted and police then were also combing a number of shacks along the coastline near the campsite there at the blowholes, searching rubbish bins and everywhere they could, they were just desperately trying to find that sleeping bag. And that might have given some indication of what had happened to Cleo, whether she had just wandered off or if the sleeping bag was missing, you know, whether she had ultimately been scooped up inside it and carried away. Josh, what days were you involved in the search? Uh, I was deployed on the Saturday morning with the first team that came up from the Geraldton Grand FSES and I stayed with that team until we came back to Geraldton on the Tuesday Um, and then I had a number of my volunteers with our incident control vehicle that stayed on until the land search was finally brought to a close on the Friday. We know a heap of agencies were involved. How many volunteers did SES have on the ground? So we had over 45 volunteers that were deployed from across the the region and the Pilbara. So we brought crews up from Geraldton, Kalbarri, Eniaba, Shark Bay. We obviously had the guys from Carnarvon working really hard before any of us got there. Um, And we had a team from Exmouth come down as well. And then on top of that, we had our marine rescue guys from Carnarvon route participating in the search as well. So we had one unit that travelled well over 600 kilometres one way to attend that search. Yeah, you're just drawing resources from vast areas. We saw incredible pictures of the volunteers in their bright orange uniforms and they're lined up as they're walking through the bush and walking on the roads. How does a ground search like that work? So there's a lot of variables there and I guess it comes down to the situation that you're dealing with at the time. So Resourcing is obviously a big thing and the more people you have, the easier it is to cover a large area of ground. So in a situation like that, when we're looking for a young child, it's just that methodical approach to searching those areas of highest probability to rule those out and then expanding the search area as we go through that process. And do you go back over ground a second time? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously we're working under the direction of WA Police when we're at a land search and marine search is the same. And what we do is we take that methodical approach, we go through that area, we have a a process we go through where we determine uh, or what we call a probability of detection. So we we look at a number of factors including weather, terrain and vegetation and, and topography and then we work out how confident we are that that area has been searched to a certain degree and if we need to go back in there to bolster that then absolutely that's exactly what we'll do. You're from the Geraldton unit which we know is you know a good five-hour drive you've got people who are coming from up to 600 k's away just logistically where are these 45 people staying the blowholes is a remote campground how are you even logistically organizing this search? 
So we were pretty lucky in that regard, I guess, given that the blowholes aren't too far from Carnarvon. It provides it's a good opportunity for welfare and logistic support to be based out of Carnarvon. So we supply the resourcing. WA Police provide the support to our teams when we're deployed for those sorts of incidents. We were spread across town in a number of hotels and motels to make sure that we could keep our crews well-rested, well-fed and looked after through that process. And then in the short drive in and out every day really isn't too difficult to manage given some of the, the more remote places that we quite often work, like Mount Augustus and places like that. I imagine there would be some people on the ground who would know Cleo's family and know of them. What was the mood like among everyone? It's a mixed feeling, I guess. You know, you, For the most part, and one thing that I can always say about the SES is you know, our volunteers show the epitome of professionalism. So our volunteers, as hard as they get, will always try and maintain a fairly positive approach to everything they're doing. But obviously, you know, a missing four-year-old child is always going to bring out a number of emotions. There's always that people take on a little bit of a personal side to what's happening because, you know, they might have a similar situation. So, you know, I have a three-year-old son, one of our other members that was deployed has a four-year-old granddaughter. So trying to work forward and maintain a high level of professionalism is always what we're aiming for because we can't allow those things to hamper what we're doing. Yeah, it's a really difficult situation for people to be in. And through these early days and these crucial days, we know that the resources were being ramped up and police um, were deploying drones over the blowholes and mounted police joined the search. And John Monday, this is what he had to say, and he, of course, is from Geraldton, like yourself. We have got the best people we can investigating this and we are going to leave no stone unturned until we have some answers. Just a couple of days into the search, police questioned Cleo's biological father. Yeah, so on day three, again on the Monday, police down in Perth interviewed Cleo's biological dad for a number of hours. Now, not a lot is known about the relationship between Cleo's biological dad and Cleo or Cleo's mum, other than that they did separate during Ellie's pregnancy with Cleo. And just going from social media, it doesn't appear that he's had a major presence in Cleo's life, although obviously it's impossible for us to know that. But the police and everyone has always referred to Cleo's stepdad, Jake, as her dad. So just, you know, basing our assumptions on that, it seems that Cleo's biological dad might not have been an active or regular presence in her life but no doubt you know this has been a traumatic and horrific experience for him and he was questioned for a number of hours by police down in Perth on the Monday they quickly ascertained that he was in Perth at the time that Cleo was abducted and ruled him out as a suspect but not knowing the details and circumstances of their relationship or family setup, you know, my heart still goes out to him and I've thought very much about him throughout yeah. the last few weeks and what he would be going through because at the end of the day, he's her biological dad no matter what the situation. So. And again, you know, the armchair detectives were making their own assumptions, even though police were really adamant that people shouldn't jump to conclusions. This is what Inspector Monday said. This search... Um, has an investigative component that is part of the investigative component. So basically this was in relation to people questioning why he was being questioned and it was like well that is just part of the investigation that's what we do we speak to everybody who has a relationship with the family. Kristen we mentioned the tent zipper in episode one and police did confirm that it was zipped open to a height that a four-year-old couldn't reach but then with that information John Monday then 
almost had this moment where he had to then reassure people not to panic or not to worry about what might be going on in the area. Yeah, that's a little bit confusing and I'm I'm not sure why he said that. I can only assume that it is because from police's offender profiling advice that they assumed that whoever took Cleo was a lone offender who was no longer in the area. That's sort of the only reason I think that he would have said that because, I mean, obviously by day five, everyone did believe that Cleo had probably been abducted and police were openly expressing those grave concerns and abduction fears. So for him to say that no one else in the area needed to be worried about their safety, I can only assume is because they assumed Cleo had been taken by a lone offender and that they were no longer around. Yeah, that was exactly my reading of it at the time, that you didn't have to worry, there was no other threat. I mean, there was a lot of angst at this point and Ellie went on to Instagram and she was basically begging and said, you know, please come home to me. And again, she was reiterating that there was just no way that her daughter would wander off. She won't leave my side if I'm walking in the shops. She would never leave that tent alone. Josh, on day four... The weather turned bad and that threw a real spanner in the works for your team up there. What was that morning like with that bad weather? Uh, It it wasn't particularly pleasant. We'd had some conversations the day before between our search commander and the the deepest commander and the police about how the next day may look because we were pretty well aware that that weather was coming in um, and that will certainly change the methodology behind how we search. So we'd sort of put a plan together on how we would tackle that, still get out to do what we needed to do without um, obviously putting people at unnecessary risk. So it was wet, it was windy. That's when we decided that it was time to, you know, start hitting some of the tracks with the vehicles. We had a couple of all-terrain utilities that were lent from another government department that we utilised along the beach and, and we just had to change our methodology a bit, which isn't unusual in any of those environments. Yeah, it was really unseasonal. I mean, the Bureau of Meteorology said that it was unusual given it was spring and I think the winds hit 75 k's an hour and there was significant rainfall. Did you have to completely suspend the search at any point? We started a little bit later in the morning just while we finalised the plans for moving forward. Obviously, we want to be out there and doing as much as we can in the time that we've got, but we're also mindful that we don't want to be putting people at undue risk or creating a, another hazard in the process. So we took the time we needed to come up with a workable plan and then deployed teams as soon as we were able to. And those risks would be things like people themselves being blown into the water or all sorts of things, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got a number of issues there. You know, if we had people walking along through the blowholes along that coastal section where the cliffs are, there's every potential there that we're going to have another issue to deal with. So it's just being smart, developing a plan, coming up with a solution that's going to meet the need but not create that unnecessary risk in the process. And did the weather really heighten everyone's level of anxiety about Cleo's well-being, that she was out there in these elements if she was out there in the elements? I guess that's always a consideration, yeah. We're always mindful. When we do our our land search training, we talk a bit about the types of conditions people can survive in and we talk about what's ideal and what's less than ideal. And and when weather does change like that, you are very mindful of that because obviously if it's uncomfortable for you, then it's obviously going to be uncomfortable for someone who's out in the bush, particularly if they've been there for a couple of days. 
And once that weather sort of passed and calmed down a little bit, what happened next in terms of that search? So we recommenced our groundwork as as we'd been doing previously. So um, we had a crew changeover. So it was that afternoon that the majority of my crew went back to Geraldton um, and we had the other crews come down from Exmouth. And we had the other guys working through with the Carnarvon team as well. So we did what we could. A few of us went home because it was time for us to go. And, uh, and we continued on through till the end of the search, working with WA Police and working with them to meet their needs. Was this one of the most expansive searches that you've personally been involved in? So I've been with the State Emergency Service since 1999 and I've been involved with quite a number of land searches, including for children. Obviously, the circumstances behind this one were a little bit different to possibly some of those others, but having been involved with quite a number of land searches, each one is quite unique. And quite often, the size of the land search, the resourcing that's required can vary quite a lot. And as the sun goes down, as it does each day when these searches are happening, we basically then spend another really difficult night and it's a long night while everyone waits till the sun comes up the next day. And is that how it feels for you as well? Yeah, it's always hard driving away because obviously everyone wants to do uh, as much as humanly possible. But one of the things we really drive home in our training is that everyone has their limits Hence why we don't deploy teams for weeks on end to participate in those activities. When you're deployed and you're spending 10 or 12 hours out in the field walking through less than ideal terrain, because it was very rocky and and there was a lot of prickle bush and and it just wasn't particularly pleasant to be walking through, you've got to take that downtime to rest and recuperate so that you can continue on the next day. But yeah, absolutely, it's hard driving away at the end of the day thinking that, you know, there's more work to be done. Authorities are still working on the assumption that little Cleo is alive, but now four days into the search in these conditions, if the four-year-old wandered off, her chances of survival couldn't be more slim. Those SES volunteers do an incredible job. Thanks, John, Kristen and Alan. Join us for episode three when seasoned homicide detectives take over the case with a million dollars on offer. For more information on this case, including news articles and video, head to thewest.com.au forward slash Cleo. My Name is Cleo is recorded in the studios of the West Australian newspaper. This podcast is produced and edited by Kate Ryan and hosted by executive producer Natalie Bongiolo. Audio clippings provided by Channel 7 and WA Police. 